Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Jason? Jason, you've got to help me. That mob out there is crazy. They're trying to kill me. Well, why would they want to do a nasty thing like that? I don't know. I'm not such a bad guy. You're a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. So I have a few faults. Who doesn't? Is that any reason to kill me? That's right, listeners. We are discussing with spoilers aplenty the 1980 comedy 9 to 5, starring Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, and Dabney Coleman. Directed by Colin Higgins, this movie is rated PG with a running time of 1 hour and 49 minutes. 9 to 5 was nominated for one Oscar, Best Music, Original Song, 9 to 5. So, what's this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. In this witty, satirical farce, secretaries Dolly Parton, Jane Fonda, and office manager Lily Tomlin live every female worker's dream after discovering they share the same resentment towards their egotistical, sexist boss, Dabney Coleman. When they get an unexpected chance to take revenge, they turn their male-controlled workplace into a model office, even as their scheme spins wildly out of control. Parton's hit song received an Oscar nomination. Jane Fonda originally came up with the idea for a film about women office workers after speaking with clerical workers in Boston and Cleveland, when director Colin Higgins asked the women if they ever fantasized about getting even with their bosses. He later described their reaction as opening a floodgate. Their bizarre, funny stories reinforced the decision to make 9 to 5 a comedy. Getting even is a full-time job. 9 to 5. So that was what's on the box. Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Bill Bant. How are you this evening? I am doing well. I am ready to get into this movie about the workforce, the workplace. That's right. Did you work 9 to 5 today? No, I do not work 9 to 5. I'm usually more of a 12 to 7.30 kind of person. You know, it's funny now that I think of it, Bill Bant, I don't know if any of my close friends actually have a 9 to 5 job. Yeah, I don't think I've really technically ever had a 9 to 5 job. I certainly haven't. It's interesting because obviously there's tons of people out there that work 9 to 5. Soon enough, we may only have four-day work weeks coming up. But yeah, I don't think any of my friends work 9 to 5. Regardless, I'm ready to get into this uh, satirical farcical comedy. All right, so let's move on to earliest memories. What is your earliest memories of 9 to 5, Jason? I've never seen this film in its entirety. How about that? That's crazy. I know, you did not know that. I had revealed that to you recently, just before we recorded this, and you did not know that. And it is true. I believe I saw bits and pieces here and there. I saw the trailers when I was young, but I did never see this entire movie. So I do remember... As a seven-year-old, when this uh, had come out, I believe it was 1980, I have a vague recollection of my parents enjoying this, which made me think, hey, my parents used to go to the movies too. And not always with my sister and I, they actually had date nights. Now, for instance, I do remember when my parents went to see The Eye of the Needle, Donald Sutherland and Bill Nighy. They went in one theater when my sister and I went into another theater to watch The Empire Strikes Back for a second time. But it's funny to think that my parents used to go to see adult movies together without us kids. 
I'm not sure if they saw 9 to 5 on a date night, but it's entirely possible. Anywho, my earliest memories specific to the stars of this movie are, first, of course, Dolly Parton, famous country singer, and boobs. Yes, sir. As a seven-year-old, I was fascinated with her boobs. Now, yes, as a young boy, it was a natural attraction, but it was more a fascination. Obviously, I hadn't, you know, gone through puberty. I wasn't an adolescent. I was only seven. I was just fascinated with the sheer size of her boobs. I hadn't seen anything quite that large, at least not that large and that buoyant. But of course, I was very familiar with her hit song from this movie. I heard it on the radio all the time. Good old nine to five. And her voice to this day is unmistakable. And as well as her look and her character and personality. She's a charmer. As for Lily Tomlin, I knew she was a sketch comedian. I was familiar with her character work on Laugh-In as Edith Ann, the five-and-a-half-year-old in a huge rocking chair, and Ernestine, the telephone operator. And then there's Jane Fonda, who was already a two-time Academy Award-winning actress at this point. And the fact is, I would only come to know her from her workout videos, aptly named Jane Fonda's Workout. Funny enough, an early memory in general is the first time I went to the drive-in movie theater with my parents, and I'm pretty sure we saw The Electric Horseman, which stars Jane Fonda, as well as Robert Redford, of course. But I digress. I literally have no (laughs) memory of this movie, outside of seeing the clips from the movie previews on TV as a kid. That's all I got, Bill Bant. What are your earliest memories of 9 to 5? Yeah, so the first time I watched this was when it came out on HBO, and I remember watching it with my parents. And right away, as soon as that 9 to 5 song came on, I was hooked. And I remember asking my parents if they, either of them worked 9 to 5, and neither of them did. Uh, My mom was a nurse, so she always had crazy hours. And my dad uh, was a grocer, so he always had weird hours too. So no one in my family worked 9 to 5. So this was a whole different world than what the workplace was from what I knew from what my family was telling me. Of course, the main stars of the movie that you just mentioned, Jane Fonda and Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin, the ironic thing was going into this movie was I knew who Dolly Parton was. Granted, at that point, my whole country music um, encyclopedia, you could say, was Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers, Willie Nelson. That's all I knew about country. I wasn't a country fan, but I knew who those three people were. So I knew who Dolly Parton was going into this movie. Lily Tomlin, I knew who she was from the Edith character that used to appear on The Electric Company. So I knew who she was. Jane Fonda, I had no clue who Jane Fonda was. I knew nothing about Jane Fonda. And then it was funny to go look back on it and go, oh my God, that was Jane Fonda. Like I said, two-time Oscar-winning actress at that point. So that is kind of funny when you look back. And she was probably the biggest name of the three, but she was the one I, I didn't know. It's funny that you mentioned that you said you never saw this before. I ended up taping this movie on VHS. And I remember I had, it was 9 to 5 and War Games were on the same tape for some reason. It's just weird how you randomly put movies together because you just, whatever was available, you just pop it in and record it. I can't remember what the third movie was, but I know those two were together. I became a big Dabney Coleman fan because of this movie, even though he is the bad guy in that. And that crazy outfit that the ladies made him wear at the end of the movie when they're trying to keep him captive. Um, Not that I understood why they were doing it. I didn't understand what the whole warehouse thing was. I just knew 
that the warehouse was empty. It was supposed to be full, but I didn't know why it was empty. So that was until later viewings, understanding that he was stealing or taking money that was supposed to be using to supply this factory um, and just taking the money for himself. So that was kind of interesting. I, I didn't really understand the movie. I think it was more into the fantasy elements of it, the pseudo dream sequences of how they're going to kill Mr. Hart, the keeping him kidnapped. Jane Fonda's ex-husband keeps showing up throughout the movie. So all that stuff to me, I thought was kind of interesting. And then, and then, of course, at the very end, how with Mr. Hart out of the picture, they made the office environment a lot better. Oh, of course, Ross. It was like, always stay away from Ross. Ross was bad news. And like, I knew they, they stay away from her. I don't think I understood the hatred that the rest of the staff had towards Ross until later viewings also. And then not even understanding why Roz was such a tattletale on the rest of the staff. Because, hey, you need the staff in order for the work to get done. She was a kind of interesting evil character. And then she reminded me a lot of the sister from Superman 3, the one that turns into a scary robot at the end. I almost thought it was the same actress. They almost look alike. They could be kissing cousins. But, yeah, that's my earliest memories of 9 to 5. I love it, Bill Band. You always have strong, strong memories and some great stories. Uh, gosh, I could comment on so many things. First of all, it made me think of how many movies you always knew you could fit onto a VHS tape. Oh, you yeah. You plan accordingly and you would try to record it very specifically and, and get the total running time of each movie so that you knew there was enough space on the tape in order to record the entire movie. Because God forbid you'd have to split up a movie for some reason on two different tapes. You wanted to get an entire movie on an entire tape and at least two full movies, if not three, depending on the length of the VHS tape. Remind me, weren't there like six hour and then like eight hour? Yeah, so you would do SP, VHS like LP, or SLP. So it would be right, two, right, right, four, right. six. But that affected the quality of the recording though, of course. Correct. So your best was, of course, to do SP. I think later on I would always do it LP, so I'd at least get two on there. But I remember our first VCR was one of the top loaders, so yep. you could see the tape in there. And I, I don't know how many times I would literally look at the flashlight while something's recording and just go, mm -hmm. oh, please don't run out, please don't run out, please don't run out. Absolutely, 100%. And then There's it goes to the end and starts rewinding. That. Yeah, and then it just starts automatically rewinding. You're like, shit, give me another tape. Absolutely, man. That's part of living in the 80s, man. It was just kind of fun to do that, too. It was kind of like you were playing a little bit of a game, something you just had to figure out. And then when you got it right, you were so proud of yourself, like as if you accomplished something. But uh, also the, the country music of the time, my parents were very similar to yours in their taste of music. They listened to country Western and a lot of folk singers. But my country Western music exposure was also Dolly Parton but mainly Willie Nelson, a little bit of Waylon Jennings, and Kenny Rogers as well. Yeah, those were the big guys. I remember my parents also listened to a lot of Simon and Garfunkel. As far as country western, yeah, they were fans, and I was exposed to that genre early on. But there was something else I was going to mention. You know, it was just the fact that you did have the advantage of seeing this as a kid. I did not, at least in its entirety. And... I can now see from a child's point of view how this would really be a fun movie. I'm not saying it's not fun by any means from an adult perspective, but when you were just talking about being attracted to the fantasy sequences and those are things you remember, that totally makes sense. And those would 
I can see as a kid just watching that and being like, this is really, really fantastical and fun. And I'd, I'd want to watch it over and over again. So I could understand why you taped it on VHS. Right. And it's funny, too, because when you watch the movie, there's so much that as a kid went over my head, the whole issue of Mr. Hart spreading the rumor that he's sleeping with Darlene, mm-hmm. of the fact that Mr. Hart is stealing from the company and pocketing the money for himself. I didn't understand all that just office rumors and how that affects relationships. But I think just because I recognized two of the actresses, that's what kept me going. And and like I said, the fantasy elements of it and even the comedy of, or even just listen to my parents like laugh at some of the stuff. I think that just kind of helped too. It takes on uh, after we'll get into it, but at about the 30 minute mark of this film, it really fully embraces that farcical satirical nature it becomes quite theatrical. I, again, as a child, I could see how that element would just be really, really fun. Yes. And you have these physical comedians with Dabney Coleman and Lily Tomlin. That they just, they're masters of that. So you didn't have to understand all the deeper themes and the, the real satire that they're attempting to pull off here in this movie. You just watch and watch some of the slapstick and have a good laugh. All right, so let's move on to initial thoughts. What were your initial thoughts of 9 to 5? This movie starts right off, man, with the piano thumping and the familiar intro to one of the most popular songs of the day, Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. Trying to do my radio DJ voice. Working 9 to 5, what a way to make a living, barely getting by, it's all taken and no given. They just use your mind and they never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. I always feel like it's a good idea to start your movie off with a strong tune, giving off some strong vibes, and in this case, super positive vibes. I mean, what a great way to start this movie when you're watching some uh, city scenes and the working women just getting to work in the morning, trying to get get to the office by 9 a.m. So here's an initial thought, Bill Bant. Lily Tomlin, man, what a star. She plays... One of the three protagonists or main female protagonists in this film named Violet Newstead and Lily Tomlin's a natural. Her delivery is flawless. She knows what movie she's in. This is old hat for her. She's so flawless. I mean, right off the top, she has some great like subtle zings. You'd mentioned the character of Roz, who is a bit of a tattletale, and she reports to the vice president, Franklin Hart Jr., I believe is his name, played by the great Dabney Coleman. And Roz likes to keep an eye on all the secretarial staff and make sure everything is order and everything is being done by the book. All the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. And so she likes to tattletale and find and be really nitpicky. But we have Lily Tomlin as Violet, and she's the supervisor to the secretaries, and she's been there forever. She's been there for years, and she knows how Roz can be, and they have a little bit of a back and forth right in the beginning. And this is just where Lily Tomlin shines, because Roz is saying, I've noticed that in your department, you know, things have been slacking a bit. And she says, here, I've I've got a memo for you to put up on the corkboard, and Lily Tomlin responds, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know exactly where you can stick it. And it just kind of flies right by, and it's just she nails it. Or she says when Jane Fonda's character is having trouble in the copy room, excuse me, right before she's having trouble, Lily Tomlin is is showing her the ropes, and she's showing her how to make the copies and, and or use the machine. 
and it's just really, really loud. And Lily Tomlin just delivers this line. Yes, yeah, several people have lost their hearing in this room. And it goes by almost so fast. It's a delayed reaction, or at least it was on my part. I'm like, she is funny. She's just, she's funny. And she just knows how to say it right, to deliver it right. She has the comic timing. She's a pro. Can Dolly Parton be more adorable, Bill Band? Not at all. Can she be more adorable? It is not possible. It is not possible. The Southern accent, the smile, the voice, the whole cute, sexy, yet innocent look. Man, she has it perfected. Love Dolly Parton. Look, we all know she's an attractive woman, but there's something so damn charming about her. You just want to hang out with her all the time. She exudes just a ton of positivity. Uh, here's another initial thought. Just such a small role, but I love the co-worker named Margaret, the alcoholic in this. Yes. <laughs> she's hilarious. <laughs> just want to give her a shout out. She takes the flask out of her locker near the beginning. She takes it out and she says, oh, yeah, this is for medicinal purposes. Love when she's uh, every time. This is when things blow up like it got after. I guess it's a kind of one of many inciting incidents here. But each of our three female protagonists are really upset with the boss, or I should say the, the vice president boss, Franklin Hart. And uh, they each are storming out of the office to go have a drink. And of course, the alcoholic Margaret's like, that a girl, that a girl, that a girl. <laughs> She's in full support of going to have a drink to get to let loose a little bit. Anyway, hey, Bill Bent, is this when nylon tracksuits were a thing? It's just a sign of the times. Really funny. I think tracksuits have always been a thing for certain people, and know, that's okay. Dude. I'm just... <laughs> I don't think they've gone out of style for some people, Jason. <laughs> they really have it, man. I was thinking about that. I don't know. It's an initial thought, man. Uh, they have made a comeback here and there. I, maybe they never did go anywhere. I know there was a tracksuit mafia in the recent Disney Plus series Hawkeye, which is great. Anyway, Jane Fonda's soon-to-be ex-husband is wearing one, so it made me think of that. It is very turn of the decade, going from 70s to 80s. Like, you know, this is a film that comes out in 1980. You get the, the hairstyles, the big hairstyles. We got nylons. We got polyester. We got the interior design of the office building, the carpet floors, the walls with the wood paneling. We got all these typewriters and these, they're not even cubicles. They're just desks in several roll, rows in this giant office in this very generic, it's called Consolidated Companies. We don't even know what they do. No it's idea. great. I actually like that in this movie. We don't need to. So here's an initial thought. I was having fun with this movie until about the 35-minute mark when our three protagonists come together for an afternoon of drinks, and then they share their little, what I call their stony stoner party at Dora Lee's house, and they all describe their fantasy of getting back at their boss, a little wish fulfillment, and it goes from a fun, straightforward comedy to an over-the-top, slightly goofy, slightly slapstick, slightly deranged and zany comedy. Now, overall, for me, it was fun because Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton are great, and Dabney Coleman is just great handling the physical gags, literally and figuratively. <laughs> He's actually gagged in this. But it's all a bit all over the place, tonally. Just wasn't what I was expecting. Again, this is my pretty much my first watch, and I'm watching it as an adult. It just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So to quote our good friend and director, Marwan Abdurzak, who is quoting Randy Jackson from American Idol, it was just all right for me, dog. It was kind of two different movies in one. So I'll expand on it later. Those are my initial thoughts. How about you, Bill Ben? Yeah, so for me, my initial thoughts, 
Yeah, the music right away just gets you right into it. Heck yeah. With the nine to five. And you mentioned it too, watching everyone get ready for work. Meeting Jane Fonda's character, I thought was great because we find out this is her first day in the working world. She's, well, she's separated and she's going through a divorce. So she needs to find her own job. And we see her in the elevator and she's got this bright blue dress on, this huge hat. And it was such a contrast to everyone else. Because everyone's mm-hmm. got their browns and their grays. It just symbolizes what that work life must be. Because when she first steps into that office and it's all the desks laid out and they're all three feet from each other and there's no separation. I said, I was like, there's no way I could ever work in that kind of environment. I need space. That would mm-hmm. drive me crazy. I don't know how people do that or even did that. And for those of you that do that, more power to you. It's, it's not something I can do. And then you have Lily Tomlin, Violet, showing Judy around. And there's that scene when they're by the elevator and it, they run into Eddie and Eddie works in the mailroom. Mm-hmm. And Violet says, oh, this is a, our new hire. And Eddie gets pissed off because he's like, how the hell am I going to get out of the mailroom if you keep hiring people above me? And then he just basically tells her, like, you're going to hate it here. There's nothing worse than the first day of a new job because you're like, how am I going to get through these eight hours or nine hours or how many hours you got to work? Because you have no idea what you're supposed to be doing. You don't know where anything is. You're meeting all these people for the first time. And that's one of the first things that comes out of someone's mouth. That's just got to be deflating. But he's certainly on point. I mean, especially when you meet Danny Coleman, Mr. Hart, and see how this place is run. And as we mentioned in the beginning, he's a egotistical SOB. And it shows by the way he treats Violet because Violet was training him and he jumped her. And now she's depending on him to get a promotion that he's not going to give her because he knows without her, the rest of the office isn't going to be run as well as it is. And I'll get into that scene later because it is one of my favorite scenes. I thought it was an interesting way of just seeing the work environment. Yes, the tone does definitely change a lot after they do the the fantasy element of killing Mr. Hart. And it does get into a little more slapsticky there at the end. Yeah, you kind of think it's going to be more of a serious kind of film in the beginning with just light elements. But like I said, because I've, I've been watching this since I was nine years old, I still enjoyed it. I, I was still laughing out loud. Dolly Parton, she's amazing in this. She just lights up the screen every time she is on it. Yep. And I know she's a performer and she performed a lot of people, but for this being her film debut, man, she knocks it out of the park. And the three of them just carry it through it. And then, yeah, even throw in Dabney Coleman and uh, his performance too, because you hate him, but you like him at the same time. There's something very weird about his character in it. It He's an asshole, but there's something likable about him as an asshole. And I think that's why I always then liked anything that Dabney Coleman was in. He just played that role so well. That if I was like, oh, Tammy Colton is in this movie. Cool. He just made me a fan, even though, yeah, he's the dick in it, but he's cool in it. Yeah, I don't disagree, man. Again, I wish I had seen this as a kid because I would have probably had a lot more nostalgic attachment to it. But our three leading females in this film, they're stars, man. And you, you get it. Dolly Parton, as you said, film debut, she just has it. 
Yes. She just has it. It's a star quality. It's in her face. It's an expression. She walks into a room and immediately brightens it and lights it up. She shines. Lily Tomlin just has this inherent confidence. She commands. She's going to take control of the scene. And Jane Fonda is just freaking Jane Fonda. You know, I mean, she's she obviously a very beautiful woman. And again, there's just an innate it factor with her as well. And obviously quality actress. So I love the commentary on Dabney Coleman. Now, you know, I, of course, I think was probably introduced to Dabney Coleman with Cloak and Dagger. That didn't come back till, what, 84, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And then uh, you look at this, he's a stud. There's no question about it. I mean, talented, talented guy. And I'm going to get to that, my first favorite scene slash scenes. Let me go back to Lily Tomlin real quick, because when you see her in the office and the way everyone responds to her, mm-hmm. watching this now is like, wow, I wish I worked for someone like her. Yeah. Great point. She just seems like one of those people, like if she asked me to do something, I'm going to try to do my best to get it done because I don't want to disappoint. Mm-hmm. And you just want to do it for her because she's looking out for you. And that's what I liked about her character. Yeah. They're cast extremely well. If I have any complaints, I go, I, you know, I go a little bit back and forth on Jane Fonda. We know she's an immensely talented actress. There's no question about that. It's just that Lily Tomlin really does play the role of the boss really well. I mean, she could be a teacher. She could be a mentor. She could be, uh, even though she's clearly not that old in this film, but she doesn't have to be. She just exudes this character of experience. She just, again, like you said, when she talks, you listen. Versus a Dolly Parton, who, I guess in this way, uh, at least on the surface, a stereotypical secretary uh, role. So uh, Jane Fonda playing kind of the the rookie, the new girl on the block. She plays it well. It's just, we just know it's Jane Fonda. You know, it's kind of tough for me to buy it a little bit because sometimes there's stars that are just too big to play smaller parts or character that doesn't have a lot of experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, because not knowing who she was, I didn't realize hell against type she is actually playing in that movie. Sure. And now that, that see, I've seen, there you go. Yeah, now point. that I've seen her filmography up to that point, yeah. This would not really be a Jane Fonda character. Jane Fonda would be more of the Lily Tomlin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Technically she could almost play like the female Mr. Hart. Oh, you know, that's interesting. Little role reversal, little gender swap. Mm-hmm. Good stuff, man. All right. So let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of your favorite scenes and moments from 9 to 5, Jason? Well, I'm going to start off probably, you know, with, I'm just going to say the first 10 minutes. Okay. Because it's a great opening. You kind of, you brought it up. And this, you know, you can help me out, Bill Bant, because I actually hadn't had this written down. I was thinking about editing it before we started our recording tonight. And then you started talking about it in your early memories and initial thoughts. I was like, yeah, the first 10 minutes are great. You know, I'm a fan of the initial setup of a film, but this is smart. You know, with the opening song kicking in and then we see these ladies getting ready to go to work in the big city. And immediately you're put in a position of being sympathetic because 
they're wearing high heels and it's a sign of the times and it's the, it's the skirts, it's the nylons, it's the high heels, it's the hair's got to be right. And they're painting a picture for you right away and putting you in a state of mind to be somewhat sympathetic and empathetic towards these women that got to get to their nine to five jobs. And they're trying to, they have all their papers in their purses and they have to have all this stuff together to get to work. And then we are introduced to Judy played by Jane Fonda and she sticks out like a sore thumb immediately, which is really funny to me. I didn't know it didn't work for me initially, but then Bill Banton, you kind of turned me around on it because I think it's done on purpose. But as soon as she shows up in the middle of the crowd, you're like, who's the woman in the blue dress? There's a real contrast there. And it's just a great introduction to our characters when she comes up the elevator. She gets to her floor, doesn't realize she's on the right floor, and then gets smashed in between the elevator doors, which is kind of a... She does a nice little comedic physical bit of comedy there. Her face is kind of smashed up. And then uh, we're introduced to Violet, played by Lily Tomlin, and she's the supervisor of the secretaries. And she's not thrilled about the fact that she's got to train the newbie in Judy. But she puts a smile on her face and she introduces herself to Judy and there's a little walk and talk. And this is part of the exposition. We get the lay of the land. It's always it always works, you know, introducing the new person in the workplace, because then we as the audience use that new person kind of as our avatar and we get to learn the lay of the land along with them. So it's kind of fun. And then we're introduced to Roz and then immediately we just get a real sense of these characters. And then when they go into the office of Franklin Hart, who is the vice president of Consolidated Companies and Franklin Hart being Dabney Coleman. This is where, you know, the just the strength of him as an actor. He's got presence, you know, sitting behind the desk in his uh, recliner chair and immediately just puts on this aura of I'm the man. I literally, I am the man. You are the women. I run the show. I am in power. I control all of you. And he is so sexist and misogynistic and chauvinistic, and he just plays it to a T. He's a bit of a prick. You're right, Bill. There's something about him, though. You're like, I kind of like him in a way. Like, he's being nice about it, but he plays it really well. This is where I get kind of confused with the tonality of the film, because he is a the sexist and egotistical and hypocritical bigot, but... He plays it so well as if it's just, that's how it is. This is, he speaks of the fact that, uh, for instance, he makes a comment on uh, Judy Jane Fonda's looks. It's like, oh, thank, you know, thank goodness we have a pretty girl coming in. You know, the last few have been, well, pathetic or something. I'm paraphrasing. Oh, yeah. But it's like, whoa, yeah, okay, not cool. And of course, Lily Tomlin is trying not to overreact and she's not happy with these remarks. But he says these things, but then he'll sit down in the recliner and lean back and there's it's a kind of a running gag in the movie. There's something, the chair is broken. So he falls backwards a little bit. It, it just, he loses his balance. He doesn't fall over, but he falls backwards. He's like, dang it, we got to get this chair fixed. But he does it so well. It's really funny. Who is this guy? He's doing it all. He's funny. He's a jerk, but he's kind of charming. I hate him, but I kind of like him. So I get what you're saying, Bill. Okay, we get who Franklin is, and we understand he's most likely going to be the antagonist. And then Dolly Parton shows up on the scene, and with her voice and the ruby red lips and the big like blonde bouffant hair, and she's you know wearing the tight dress, and there's just kind of that funny thing because, yes, 
Dolly Parton is known for the the big bosoms and Jane Fonda can't help but look at them. And then she kind of looks down at her own yes, chest. It's like, great. Oh my, what? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like it's almost an inside joke, a little wink at the audience there. Cause everybody knows uh, it's just a fun introduction to our characters, walk and talk through the office. Uh, some great acting, very distinct characters and characterizations and, Really, really refreshing to see Dolly Parton uh, show up on the scene. And then I'll just end with this. When then she goes into the office to have a scene with Franklin, we understand Franklin's attraction toward her. And again, a little bit of the the sexism, misogyny, chauvinism, all that comes into play. But she holds her own, and it's fun to watch Dolly Parton, even though she can, she can play the timid, innocent, uh, meek character well when it comes time to be to strong and put up a fight. She uh, certainly is up to the task. So it's just that whole opening 10 minutes. No, it's a great opening because as a writer, man, that's almost like a layup. Bring someone in new. Now have someone walk you through all of our characters. This is such a great way to set things up. And you meet Violet Lily Tomlin and she starts with a great line because she's arguing with her, I guess, supervisor or probably HR. And we see Judy come in. And she just looks at her like, oh, my God. You could tell right away, like, this girl has no experience. And she has this great line where she says, we're going to need a special locker for the hat. I love that line. That's, <laughs> That's a great, great line. Yeah, because uh, Judy's wearing the big hat. Very, very specific. Some great choices. And I just want to mention real quick, because we mentioned character names, and I don't want our audience to get lost. We go back and forth between the actress's name or actor's name and their character and we had mentioned Violet and Judy, but Dolly Parton is playing the role of Dora Lee. I don't know if we'd mentioned her character name quite yet. So if you hear Dora Lee, that's Dolly Parton's role. Yes. Great because Tomlin, Violet would introduce, and then you have that kind of superficial, hi, nice to meet you. Welcome to the company. And then the character leaves, and then Violet gives Judy the inside dirt on her. Like, oh, that's Roz. She's the company yeah. spy. Don't say anything in front of her because then it'll go to Mr. Hart or they meet Dora Lee. Yeah, she's supposedly sleeping with Mr. Hart. So kind of stay away from her. So that was kind of cool because you, you see both sides of the character really quick in that opening. And that's I like how they establish it. And some of it's true. Some of it's false. Some of it comes into play later in the film. So in that first 10 minutes, you really get a lot of laying down the groundwork for what's going to happen throughout the rest of the film. It is a good couple minutes. Absolutely. And when, when you just described the Violet training Judy just from the get, just by walking around and giving her the, all the inside info and tips, it just reminded me of when I started a new job and I waited tables for a number of years, I would always hope to get a good trainer. And then eventually I had seniority and I was a trainer and I would do the same thing because you want to know how a workplace is run. Sure, you want to know all the technical things that go on and how to do the job right, but you've got to know the personalities that you're working with and all the little things because it helps so much to have that inside track right from the get-go. Because whether or not, at any time somebody tells you, well, this is just a business, it's a business, it's always a people business. It's always a people business. So you've got to know all the people you're working with. And then when, man, when they get to meet Dabney Coleman, uh, Franklin, it's like, wow, uh, he's a he's a real piece of work because I forgot to mention how he's 
we, you just really are immediately sympathetic towards Violet, Lily Tomlin, because we know that she's a veteran already, has even more seniority than Franklin, but he's already made vice president. She's waiting up on a promotion. And here's this jerk who is just ordering her around as if she's subservient to him and acting as if she's his secretary when she's not. It's Dora Lee's his secretary. She just happens not to be in the office at the moment. Anyway, just explaining some of the dynamics here and we can keep it moving. What's your first favorite scene or moment, Bill Bant? So for me, it would be the women end up at Charlie's. And what does that mean? Yeah. So to set all this up. So after Jason's first moment is the opening 10 minutes. So you kind of find out that even though Dorley is lovable character, the rumors are out that she's sleeping with Mr. Hart. So the rest of the staff kind of treats her as a leper. Dora Lee doesn't understand that, and it eats at her. She's super sweet. She's always nice to everyone, but she doesn't understand what's going on. We also find out in the opening minutes that, and we've mentioned this a couple times already, Violet is up for, for promotion. And the problem is that Hart is the one that's going to give her the promotion. So she's got to kiss his ass. And he has her do a lot of stuff that is not in the job description that she's paid for, but she's got to suck it up because... She's a single mom, single mom because her husband passed away and she's got to take care of her kids. She needs this promotion. She needs this money to keep the family going. And then we just have Judy. She's just new there and she's just trying to find her way because she needs to support herself now because she's going through a separation, eventual divorce. And she doesn't like Dorley too because the reason for her divorce is her husband left her because he was having an affair with the secretary. So that right. even puts a bigger wedge between Judy and Dorley. So we get to a point in the movie where Violet finds out that she is not getting the promotion. Hart is giving it to someone else and she has lost her mind. And the reason that Hart's giving the promotion to someone else, because not because that person's more deserving, but because the person supposedly needs the money to take care of the family which is the same reason why Violet needs the job because she needs to take care of her family. So she totally goes off on heart and she tells him, I'm not putting up with any your bullshit anymore. I'm not running errands for you anymore. I'm just here to do my job. I'm going to do the best of my ability, but you can go F yourself. And of course, while this is going on, Dora Lee comes in and she kind of sees this argument happening and she's right. trying to be peacemaker but then Violet turns to her and says, get out of my face. I don't want to hear it. You know, the only reason you have this job is because you're sleeping with the boss. And mm -hmm. this is the first Lee's heard about it. And now she's upset because she's like, wait, what are you talking about? Uh, Mr. Hart's been telling everybody that you've been sleeping around. And Violet storms out of the office. And then she's going to run over to Charlie to get a drink. And we have Margaret does the, at a girl. <laughs> yes. So... Violet takes off, and now we have Hart and Dora Lee having an argument, and Dora Lee's telling him, no wonder why everyone in this office hates me, because they think I'm sleeping with you, and I've been putting up with your bullshit, with you looking down my shirts, making advances on me, and she's like, I've had enough of it too. And that's when she tells him that she carries a gun, and if he pulls any of that crap again, she's going to get the gun, pull the trigger, and turn, which said, uh, rooster into a hen. 
with one shot, which is a great line. Absolutely. I have that in my uh, one of my other favorite scenes. Actually. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. No, not at all, man. I'm glad you brought it up. It's fantastic. Her whole, When she goes off on him, I absolutely love it. So then she goes storming out, and while she's storming out, here comes Roz. And then while she's leaving, she tells Roz, I'm done for the day. I'm going to get a drink. And we hear Margaret there. That a girl. Right. So then Roz goes into the office and tells Hart that she overheard two of the secretaries in the bathroom talking about their salaries, which is a no-no. And one of the secretaries kind of tried to figure out what Mr. Hart's salary is. Mr. Hart gets very pissed about this and says, well, fire the bitch. Yeah. And Roz has no problem doing that whatsoever. So now we see Judy. She's come back maybe from lunch or from wherever she was and sees now her coworkers being fired. And she tries to console her, but Judy's pissed. And then she's like, well, where's Violet to come talk to Hart? Well, that's when they said, well, she's already gone to the bar. And Judy's like, well, I'm going to the bar, too. There we go, Margaret again. That a girl. So then she ends up at the bar. So three of them are at the bar, and now they're coming together as a team. They're bonding. Yeah, they have a common struggle. And they're going to figure out how are they going to get back at Mr. Hart for what he's been doing to the office. And that kind of sets things up for the next acts two and three of the movie. Absolutely. It's great, man. The whole lead up to them all ending up together at the same bar is great. I appreciate, first of all, the fact that you brought up something I completely glossed over, which is what's partly wonderful about the exposition or character exposition and information and the introduction of these characters in the beginning of the film is the fact that we are supposed to be not necessarily, I said sympathetic, I think at some point, but it's more about just being empathetic towards the working woman, especially then in the 19, early 1980s in the workplace. This film is about the woman in the workplace and how they are dealing with sexism, objectification, and being overworked, being treated as lesser than, and not being taken care of not being paid equally, etc. So when we know that Violet is a single mother of four children, she's a widower, a mother, yeah, mother of four kids, right? Like four boys, I think even. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was three or four, but when you said four, I'm like, oh, yes, it's definitely four. And then Judy going, getting a divorce from a, a, her husband who was cheating out with the secretary, like you mentioned. And Dora Lee, who is, seems to be happily married but she's just dealing with objectification because of her uh, physical attributes. So that's the whole thing is like these women are they're just trying to survive in the workplace. They're trying to support their families. They're just or trying to get by, pay for their new apartment or, you know, just pay for their lifestyle, their livelihoods, you know. So that's the whole point here. And. They do such a good job in the first half an hour in the setup leading up to your favorite scene here, Bill Bant, because it's earned. You feel like, yeah, Dora Lee, she has a real, real argument here, a real problem with her boss who just keeps hitting on her and wants to go away with her and gives her a gift of a scarf, which was supposed to be for her wife. And then Violet comes in and she's been passed over for a promotion to another, another man who was five years her junior. Uh, as far as experience of the company gets the the promotion and she lets uh, Franklin have it. And Judy comes in and Judy's 
her gripe is a little bit less, it's not quite as strong, right. but it's still, she needed to, you know, have a gripe as well uh, because someone else is wrongly fired and she runs off to the bar to meet the other two ladies too. But it's great because you are on their side all the way and you want to see them succeed somehow. And how are they going to do it? So we've gotten to this point. We know exactly who they are and what the problem is, the obstacle here, mainly their boss, Franklin Hart, the vice president, and their strong, strong women that are going to come together and bond. And we want to see what's going to happen after this point. This is where it takes a left turn for me. And it's a matter of opinion how the film, <laughs> how you feel about the movie from this point on. But really, really solid setup. So uh, good, good choice for that scene, man. All right. What's your go ahead? Yeah, my next one's pretty simple. It, it's, it takes a place a little bit earlier, but this is just seeing the strength of Lily Tomlin playing the role of Violet when she's on the phone doing her secretary thing. And she's multitasking. And this is a credit to Lily Tomlin as an actress. And I happen to know, having done some acting myself, is when you know, you're in character, it helps to do things in character, meaning you have bits of business. You have to be busy. You're not just sitting in a chair and talking. You are doing something because that's what we do as humans. When we're having conversations with people who are on the phone, usually uh, we have our hands are occupied uh, with holding something, doing something. And she is behind her desk and she is multitasking while she's on the phone and it's amazing and it's hilarious because she puts like three or four people on hold immediately. You just see her saying, Violet Newstead, please hold. Violet Newstead, please hold. This is Violet. So she decides to answer one phone call and it's some gentleman on the other end. And meanwhile, she's doing math calculations while she's on the phone. And then at the same time, she's putting together a folder and stapling and filing and then hangs up with that guy and then switches over to another person. Uh, it's a woman. She's like, oh, Charlotte. And decides to give her directions and she's still filing and she's doing things. And then all of a sudden she switches over to the other line and it's her kids on the other line. And she says, Oh, come on, kids. Come on. No fighting. Believe me, there's more than one peanut butter banana sandwich in the world. What did I say this morning? Okay. Love you. No, I don't want to talk to the dog. Bye-bye. And hangs up on him. And it's like this locomotive man, just steaming through this scene and it's rock and roll. It's really brief. But I was just like, wow, she's awesome. That's so hard to do. She's literally doing 15 different things and just rattling off her lines. And it's completely believable. And then when she's talking to her kids on the line, it's like, not only is she a professional at work, but she's multitasking and handling her kids as a real mom, too, at the same time. And it's just super realistic and really funny. And she does it in a, a flawless, natural delivery and performance. So I appreciate that, that brief scene with her on the phone as the secretary there. That scene gives me heart palpitations because it reminds yeah. me of work and especially now post COVID because where I work, we don't have as much staff anymore. So I've had to take on different responsibilities and the responsibilities are like 180 of other stuff that I have to do. So I'm mm -hmm. working on one thing and then someone calls about something else or I get an email about a totally different part of my job and you're just trying to train your mind to then, okay, we're talking about this and now I got to go and do this. 
And now I got to go back and do this other thing. It just, it reminded me too much of work. And I was just like, oh, no, I can't can't watch this. It's reminded me too much of my own life. That's really funny. That just stresses you out. Yeah. And the way she was going through that so flawlessly, I was like, damn it. I need to be able to do it that way. (laughs) I love it. The scene triggers you. And then on top of it, it, you end up judging yourself because of it. I just appreciated it from an actor's perspective because it's one thing when you memorize your lines, you know your scene, you know your character, and you can deliver your lines flawlessly. But when you start to do other things, in between, you mean those lines have to be second nature because when you're doing as much as she's doing in that scene and delivering those lines flawlessly because she's hitting certain beats and the comic timing with the phone and switching from line to line and then doing the paperwork, stapling, doing calculations, that she's doing a lot in a very short amount of time. There's major choreography going on in that scene. And uh, yeah, she just makes it look way too easy. I don't know if this was done on purpose, if it was kind of a callback to her role as Ernestine, the character, the operator Mm -hmm. character she had from Laugh-In, I believe. You know, where she would just keep switching over to all the different lines and just she just kept going and going. She's she's amazing. She's great. What else do you have here for favorite scenes and or moments? Okay, so this is pretty much happens right after the when the women meet at Charlie's and they go back to Jorley's house and we find out that Violet got a joint from her son, which all that stuff was kind of over my head. Like I thought Maui Waui was just another name for marijuana. I didn't realize that was a marijuana like brand slang. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. yeah, I gotcha. Like it, it, yeah, is it? It was an actual strain of marijuana. Yes. That's, whatever. Yeah. It, okay. Yeah, I didn't catch that until later. And just what marijuana did, but all I knew was just kind of for some reason gave me the giggles. Um, so the girls are together. They're all pissed off at heart. They're smoking marijuana, and they decide, hey. If you had the opportunity to do in heart, how would you do it? And each of the girls has a representation of how they would do it. But my favorite one of the three is Judy's, which is she basically becomes a hunter, a big game hunter, and literally hunts heart in the office. And the scene starts off with the office is all dark. It's empty. We have this uh, mob that's running through with your pitchforks and fire. And we see Dabney Coleman running under the desk trying to get away and um, you see the co-workers in the office and like there he is go get him and they're running after him and he gets away from them and he hides in the office while the rest of the mob runs by so he thinks he's safe and then all of a sudden we see judy jane fonda sitting there in mr hart's chair with the shotgun and the lines that we went over in the beginning of the film judy you gotta help me and She's like, why would I want to do something like that? And then we have the the key line that she tells him, you're a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. And Hart doesn't understand why he is. And then she basically tells him, you know what? I'm going to put you out of your misery. Mm -hmm. She gives him a countdown to get away. And of course, Hart isn't sure if what she's saying is true. But he goes taking off back into the office. She goes out there just basically just playing around using this target practice where she shoots the gun where he's in the direction he's running to. He turns around to run back the other way. She shoots again, blah, 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 blah. Hart gets away again and ends up in the bathroom, hides in one of the stalls. Judy comes in with the gun, sees where he is, and just technically blows him away. Kills him. We don't see it, but they kind of spoof it where 
Judy's now in the office or home or somewhere, and she has heart as a trophy. That's you know the head like you would with if you shot an animal and they keep the head and they put it on a plaque or something and then hang it in the room. It ends there. Yeah, I think I like this one because it's one of the few times there's like a style to the scene. It's very dark. The lighting's kind of cool. They do some fun visuals. They kind of speed up some of the footage with Jane to show that she's very proficient with a gun. And Jane Fonda looks pretty sexy in her um, game hunter gear. Yeah. And that's I think that's the first time you kind of <laughs> notice like, oh, yeah, she's very pretty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As a kid when I had no idea who Jane Fonda was. It, it is silly, but I think it matches because the fact that they are, you know, smoking marijuana and they're having fun and they're just kind of over the top thinking of how they would do it. So I, I think it does work, but I understand what you're saying with tonally. Once those scenes are over, once those like three segments are over, it should go back to how the movie started, but it doesn't. It tacks on that kind of silliness throughout the rest of the film. But of the three, how would I do hard in segments? That one is my favorite of the three. Got it. Well said. And I understand why you thought it was so entertaining. Again, sometimes I, I guess I just need to be sold on it. And to hear it from your point of view, it just comes off as being so much more entertaining than I thought it was in the moment when I was watching it. So good on you. Thank you for that. And when these fantasy sequences begin, when each of our protagonists start their fantasies and we are let into their world and into their fantasy. They're so stylized and it's cool from a filmmaking perspective, but it's really extreme to go from what had happened in the previous scene, because don't get me wrong. We understand that this is a comedy. It's funny, but there's varying degrees of comedy and it goes from what seems to be a commentary Satirical, yes, but still insightful and thoughtful and maybe about to, you know, kind of send a message or or provide a message. And we're going to learn how these ladies overcome their strife in the, in the workplace. And we understand that there would be some wish fulfillment here as well. And it's fine to have this party where they're just letting loose and they're going to complain about their boss. And so now we get into these fantasy sequences, but it goes so stylized, like you said, with that sequence of Jane Fonda. The film stock is different. The colorization, you know, kind of is borderline black and white, but it's very cool. It's a little bit dated. And then what I do appreciate is when how they do give Dolly Parton's character, Dora Lee, a Western flair and kind of a Western theme, which ties right. I mean, oh, yeah. it's a lot easier for Dolly Parton then to play that role too. I mean, she has already has that accent and that kind of twang. And, um, and then you go into Violet's fantasy, which involves actual animation. Yeah. Holy cow. We are really going for it. And those sequences are not short either. They're extensive fantasy sequences. And that's when I said to myself, what are we doing now? Where did we just go with this movie? And then to come out of it, and then it goes into, like I said, this theatrical, very farcical type of comedy. And we'll get a little bit more into that because I yeah, unfortunately do have complaints about it because it just didn't work for me and what I thought the movie set me up for and what I was expecting to get. Now, there's it can come down to a matter of opinion and a matter of taste as well. Doesn't take away from the fact that there are still fun, lots of fun moments I also laughed out loud during some of these moments, especially during these fantasy sequences. There's a lot of fun being had here, but it just didn't work for me in the overall context of what I thought was really happening 
here in this office to these poor women. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to go on too long about that. But good description of that scene, my friend. I was just going to go back to, and I had mentioned this earlier, that scene right before our ladies end up going to Charlie's bar, because we talk about Dolly Parton really, really shining. When she finds out that her boss, Franklin Hart, has been spreading the rumor that they've been having an affair, she loses it on him and just follows him around the office yelling at Franklin saying, what, so you've been telling everybody I'm sleeping with you? How huh? well that explains it. That's why people treat me like some dime store floozy. They all think I'm screwing the boss. Oh, and you just love it, don't you? It gives you some sort of cheap thrill, like knocking over pencils and picking up papers. You have to see, like, she's a little bit diminutive. I mean, Dolly Parton's not a large person. She's a little shorter in stature, but she just really holds her own. And she's just like dominating Dabney Coleman in the scene, pushing him around the desk and walking around the room. And with that voice, and she kind of has a little bit higher pitch with that accent on top of it, she's just almost like you want to say too cute, but she's still really owning it. And at the end, like you commented on Bill Bant, the line she, or lines she has is, look, I've got a gun out there in my person up to now. I've been forgiving and forgetting because of the way I was brought up. But I'll tell you one thing. If you ever say another word about me or make another indecent proposal, I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. That's a great line. Oh, Don't think God. I can't do it. <laughs> That's just awesome. You're like, yeah, Dolly Parton, you rule. That's just awesome. So that was my last favorite scene just because can't get enough of her in this movie. I'm going to end it there. What what else do you have, man? Yeah, I what I just love about that scene too is she literally chases him around the desk and she's just like pointing into his chest. And then when he says about the papers and, the, and she's just like throwing his shit all around, mm-hmm. it's like I'm just done with you. That is a great moment. I love that. Yeah, I could even... Connected to later on when she, I should have combined two scenes. It's just because both scenes are between the two of them in his office when she's dominating him. And later on to jump ahead, I hope it doesn't step on one of your favorite scenes, Bill Bant. But when Franklin Hart finds out that the ladies had conspired to have him killed, they actually didn't conspire to have him killed. But that's what the information he's received or he's been misinformed. They have to prevent him from calling the cops on them. And Dolly Parton ends up, she does it what's called a tie-down rope. I had to do some research on this, but it's great because it ties into that Western theme that's kind of attached to her character. And she ties him up. And that's like when you go to a rodeo and you see the cowboy tied downing the calf. Mm -hmm. It's different than hog tying because that's what I thought I was going to write. And I'm like, I don't think that's actually a hog tie that she's doing. But she takes the phone wire and wraps... I think it's one hand around, it's one leg that comes up and I think both of his wrists are tied and then tied to his one leg that comes up. And it's a type of tie, I think it's called tie down roping. And that's what you see the cowboys do at the rodeo when they they, uh, lasso the calf Mm -hmm. and uh, tie it down. So the point being is another really, really strong scene for her because she's got to prevent him from getting out of the office and calling the cops so she pulls the phone cord out of the wall. He's like, oh, there's another phone in the other room. And she ties him up. And she's just yelling at him. And she's she's adorable. She's amazing. And really strong, too, at the same time. Good stuff there. Yeah, so for me, my last favorite scene, it's kind of more of a moment. But I think I always just thought this was funny as a kid. And I still think it's funny now. So after we have the ladies get together, they talk about their 
fantasy scenes on how they'd like to kill Mr. Hart. And they go back to the office the next day. And Hart asks Violet for some coffee because Dorothy's not in the office. And Violet's just so pissed that she goes to get the coffee and not paying attention, she accidentally puts rat poison in Hart's coffee. Gives it to Hart before Hart's about to drink it. The chair that always seems to malfunction, malfunctions. He falls back, hits his head, coffee goes all over the floor, and now is taken to the hospital. Well, Violet thinks, because she finds out later that Hart has gone to the hospital, but Violet thinks it's because she accidentally poisoned him. And she had no intention of doing this. It was an accident. So she goes to the hospital to hopefully tell the physicians what had happened. They probably need to pump his stomach because he's been poisoned and hopefully they can save him. And then it's your Three's Company Comedy of Errors where we find out Hart is okay. He leaves the hospital, but another patient comes into the room and that patient dies. And the ladies get confused, thinking that it's Hart that dies. And now Violet is distraught. She doesn't know what to do. She thinks she's going to go to jail. She's going to lose her kids. And she decides, if I steal the body and dispose of Mr. Hart, no one will know that he got poisoned. It won't get back to me. And I'll be okay. So as Dorlee and Judy try to calm her down, Judy and Dorlee go to call a lawyer to see if they can somehow get some help. Well, Violet's so hysterical. She's not listening to anything. She steals the body, which is not heart, but she doesn't know that. And she's running around the hospital and she's trying to get out. And these doctors are coming in into the hospital. So she ducks into a closet, which happens to be a laundry room, throws on a lab coat, walks back out and takes the body again on the gurney and decides she's going to run it out the front door. While she's doing that, she gets stopped by a candy striper, and they just have this following exchange, and the candy striper goes up to her, and she says, um, hey, can you tell me where the coffee shop is? And Violet's like, the what? The coffee shop. The coffee shop. No, I'm new, new here. I, I don't drink coffee. And the candy striper's like, I'm new here, too. Where do you work? And uh, Violet says, downstairs. And the candy striper's like, oh, in, in the morgue? And Violet says, that's right. And, of course, the candy striper sees that Violet has a body with her, so she thinks candy striper's taking it downstairs. She's like, how How did he, basically asking how the body died, and Violet comes back, coffee, too much coffee. Just taking out some <laughs> air. I mean, fresh air for me. He's just coming along for the ride. And the candy striper, she gasps because she can't believe she's taking him out. And then the candy striper realizes that Violet's, the doctor and she just says the line like oh yeah i'm a doctor so why the hell am i talking to you piss off yeah. <laughs> and then she just takes the body out the front door and throws him in the back of the trunk so then the fact that someone said piss off i just thought it was hysterical yeah. but it still it still works it's very three's company oh for sure right on man is that uh is that it for that segment yes Your favorite so, scenes so you got nothing right. else all right so let us move on to Swiss cheese and complaint departments. And why don't we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes. And if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. All right, Jason, I think you have a couple complaints for Swiss cheese. You want to get off your chest. <laughs> so I'll let I you do. I don't want to harp on it too much, but 
it's basically, again, comes down to the tone and my expectations. So it is a matter of opinion. And it's the tonal shifts are severe here for me. I'd mentioned the shift going from, you know, the first 30 minutes to the the fantasy sequences I already covered that. I wanted to mention uh, Dabney Coleman's character, Franklin Hart, again, you know, we he's a real dick. He's chauvinistic, sexist dick. And he says things like, fire the bitch. And then he's comical in moments. And so he's walking a fine line as an actor and is in character and is great. Uh, it's a nice, delicate balance there. But then it just kind of goes goofy and he's doing physical gags. Again, it's kind of a tonal shift. It's a little imbalanced after that, that first half an hour. So moving on, this movie is an hour and 49 minutes long. Great. Not too long, not too short. We're at the one hour mark. And now we're past the fantasy sequences. And this is exactly the scene you were talking about. It was one of your favorite scenes. Well, this I actually had a real problem with this because... This is where I'm going, holy cow, what are we doing now? Because Violet's at the hospital with this case of mistaken identity, as you described, and she feels as though she's killed her boss, and she's wheeling this dead body around on a gurney in the hospital in a frantic state. And I'm a little confused as to where this story is going. I was expecting it to be a film with, again, the female wish fulfillment, with the, the disgruntled and abused employees getting back at their boss. But now we've got Violet running through the hospital with this gurney in this movie that seems to have veered off course, it turns into this goofy farce. Now I do agree. The sequence she has the back and forth with the candy striper is pretty funny in the midst of it. I didn't know why are we spending so much time now, ladies and gentlemen, listeners out there, I always mention there's like a a time, a timestamp is what I'm trying to say. Like I will timestamp the movie at certain points because you know, as, as Bill and I are also writers, but also fans of film, you understand some t- a little bit about the three-act structure was just standard, and that's not how it always is, nor should it be in storytelling. But we expect certain things to happen at certain points in a movie. And when we're one hour into this movie, and I was thinking, okay, I want to see our female protagonists start to put a plan together. They've come together at the bar. They've each shared their fantasies about how they want to get back at their boss. Now, how are they going to do it? How are they going to get this guy? How are they going to overcome? And I want to see them run this office. I want to see them get him out of the office and use their best attributes and qualities in order in their smarts and their cleverness to clean up the office and, and, you know, treat all the women that work there fairly, et cetera. And that's what I was expecting. And, but now it's Violet running around the hospital and everybody's running around kind of confused and silly turns into a, not a car chase, but they're you know cruising around town with the body in the trunk. And then they got to bring the body back to the hospital. And the time is like, I'm looking at my watch going, where, where are we going? That's all. No, it makes sense. I understand what you're saying. It's kind of weird because, like I said, because we have those fantasy elements and then to shift tones again so abruptly. I don't know how you would, not that I was really thinking about it, how would you get back to the women returning to the office and now plotting to do heart in? Mm-hmm. And, I, and yeah, there's still there's still a lot of silliness with the hospital stuff, but how do you then... How do you get yourself into the third act? And yeah, that's something I'd have to think of. But listening to you tell it, yes, it makes sense what you're saying. And I agree. But I've been watching this movie for 40 years. 
I'm okay with the way it is. Absolutely. I totally get it. But what you say makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Because I, again, I think my, and this is my own fault, I was expecting a different movie. Because I did not expect them to come back from their fantasies and then come into the office the next day planning on taking him out, like literally actually murdering him or uh, debilitating him in some way, incapacitating him so that he could not perform his duties. Maybe that would be it. Maybe they wouldn't go as far as actual murder, but they would just make sure he couldn't come to work so that they could then take over the office and run it as they saw fit. That's kind of where I thought it was going to go, that somehow they would manufacture something to put him in a negative, either get him fired, set him up in some way so that they were the one, the ones making the call. And they end up doing that in a little, in a bit of a way, but that's like 20 minutes left in the movie when they finally start making changes to the office. And I was like, this is what I wanted. Right. And if if you haven't watched the movie, so what happens is, is Hart overhears the fact that the women thought they killed him. He's going to report him to police. They end up kidnapping him, holding him hostage in his house, and then try to find some dirt on him, which they do by finding out that he's been running these almost like a sub company that's supposed to have all this uh, merchandise in it. And it doesn't because he's pocketing all the money. And once they get their hands on the invoices, that'll prove that he's pocketing it. Then they could take that to the supervisors and he would get fired. So it's a race against the right. clock because it's going to take them a couple of weeks to get the information they need. So while they have them kidnapped, they're running the office in his name without anyone even realizing it. So it gets a little bit more serious at the end, but there's still some kind of silliness that happens through all of that. There's a lot of silliness, a lot of silliness. Okay. It's yeah, really, silliness. yeah. It, well, in my opinion, I'm just saying that was leading into my whole next complaint was the whole kidnapping sequence because a lot of the time Bill and I will cover a lot of the film with uh, favorite scenes and moments or we'll have covered a lot of it in earlier segments so that you get an idea of the overall or overarching story. But glad you brought this up, Bill, because this is the whole second and third act is the fact that there was a case of mistaken identity. Violet thought she had killed her boss and so did the other to Doralee and Judy, but that just wasn't the case. And then he shows up to work just fine and healthy and they freak out. He thinks that they plotted to take him out. And so he's about to call the cops, as you said. And then they kidnap him and end up putting him into this entire, this whole contraption because they kidnap him, but they have him tied up initially. And they're like, well, now we've got, we've got to hold him here as a hostage, basically for the next two two weeks, waiting to get the evidence against him to get him fired. And what are we going to do? And they have, they use like a hang gliding they use some hang gliding equipment. They like go to a sports equipment store to get all this equipment and they end up rigging this whole thing, this contraption. They put him into a harness and he's attached by a wire to the ceiling and he can then walk around the bedroom, but he can't leave because he's basically tied to the ceiling. So he can use the restroom and they feed him and he can lie in the bed and sleep and he can watch the TV, etc. But it's like this whole, again, what kind of movie? What are we watching here? I'm like, what are we doing? With the, they've now kidnapped him? Is this what this movie is about? Like, how are they going to get away with this kidnapping? Because now it's taking it to a whole nother level. 
I was trying to figure out what he was doing illegally as well. I think you explained it pretty well is the fact that Consolidated Companies, the company he is the vice president of, had a contract with a company called Ajax, and he had a warehouse where he was supposed to be storing all of these products from this company, Ajax, but he had taken what all those boxes of goods that were from Ajax and sold them and was making a profit on the side from that. And the women found out because his warehouse was empty. The goods weren't there. He had sold them off and made all this money. And so they were going to then get the invoices from Ajax company in New York to prove that they had provided these goods and he no longer had them in his possession. But then that's the whole thing is like, that's my, then I'm like, okay, that's how they're going to, you know, they're going to get them. They're going to finally get them. And here's my biggest complaint, Bill Bant, is that that whole plan, none of it happens. He foils the entire plan because he gets out of the contraption because his wife comes home early from a vacation, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Sorry, folks, we're, I'm skipping ahead here. And there's a lot of other little details, but he escapes and foils their plan. Nothing comes to fruition. They managed to change the office around a little bit while he's away, while he's being held hostage in his own home. But do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't, their plan doesn't. But it does work though, because the changes they make to the office catches the eye uh... of the board. And then the board comes down to see what he's done. And of course he can't explain any of this. And then it gets in the promotion that gets him booted out of the office. Right, right. I see what you're saying. It leads into the comedy some more. Right. Okay. Yeah. It works out in their favor, but it's all by luck. It's all just. Well, it's the all is lost moment because you think, okay, they're about to get the invoices. They're going to use that to blackmail him so he doesn't have them arrested. They're basically just going to cancel each other out with that plan. That really doesn't do him in. They're just going to cancel them out because then they can just hold that over him. Right. I understand that. Yeah. But because of what the ladies have done in the office while he's been on leave has caught the eye of Hart's supervisors. And that's now gotten him sent to Brazil. Right. Which is supposed to be, well, for him, he feels as though it's a punishment, but it's really... The owner of the company comes in at the end, Tinsworthy, and is like, I'm really impressed, Franklin, what, with what you've done with the place, with what you've done with the office, which is not his doing. It's actually the ladies had done that while they had him kidnapped in his house. And he's like, oh, well, thanks. And then he said, well, you're being promoted. I need you to, to uh, go to Brazil and make sure our company is doing well there. He's like, I'm, I don't want to go to Brazil. He's like, no, Franklin, you're going to Brazil. And we're like, oh, that's how Franklin gets his comeuppance is that he gets sent to Brazil. But it just falls flat for me because I don't know. And I don't know if it's necessary that Franklin was really taught any sort of lesson or learned anything or what was accomplished. Yes. Did the women succeed in the fact that they changed the office around and they made the necessary changes? But how did that improve the culture of the office from being a sexist workplace. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like the message well, it, does, or it does help. Gets, it gets rid of their biggest antagonist and the changes that they made get to stay. So they have a better working environment. Okay. I disagree. Yes, they got rid of their biggest antagonist. Absolutely. Like the boss that was, it, the the methodology didn't work for me. Okay. I I guess, you know, you make a good, you make a good point. I'm trying to make an, make an argument against that because it just, it wasn't about that. 
that no longer was about what was happening to them in the office. It was just about how are they going to get away with what they had done to him. But it turned out better because all, all they were going to do with the information with the warehouse was to prevent them from going to jail or getting arrested. They were just going to even out and Hart was still going to run the floor. He was still going to be an asshole to them. But because of the changes they made, it ends up getting Hart promoted. So now he leaves. He's going to Brazil for the next two, two, three years. And all the changes that the women have made in their work environment is now going to stay. So they've made a better work space for themselves. So they win. Right. So they get rid of the sexist boss and they win. Yes. Gotcha. I just didn't like how they got there. Okay. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I thought the theme got lost until the end, at least what I thought it would be, because you just have slapstick comedy. It just goes, it gets really silly for for about an hour or so. And it's just about these ladies just trying to survive this, what the situation they think they've gotten themselves into is mistaken identity and it's Dabney Coleman being kidnapped and being goofy and his contraption and just some of it just was like, I, what are we even talking about until like you, you make a good point. They do win in the end and they get rid of the, the bad boss, but it was just how they got there. I suppose is my point. Okay. All good. Um, you just want to move on. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, sorry, man. It's okay. That was a good discussion though. You had, you made a really good argument as to they did, they did win at the end. Yeah. I don't know. Did you have any uh, other complaints? I mean, I did, but they're minor. We could just keep going on. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's move on to, Hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, Hey, it's an actor. I went with Earl Bowen. I hope we don't have the same guy. No, I don't even know who Earl Bowen is, so. Okay, he plays the character. It's a very, very, very small role. He plays the character of Perkins, and he doesn't say a word. Oh, yes. I know you're talking about. He's the owner, Tinsworthy. He's his right-hand man that's keeping an eye on the consolidated company while we know as an audience that it was the ladies that were running things. But Perkins is kind of keeping an eye on things as the ladies are really basically behind the scenes and cleaning up the place and making it a much better, happier workplace. And we just see him lurking around in the background, but he has no speaking lines. And uh, this is from IMDb. Uh, Earl Bowen, veteran actor, character actor, is uh, probably best known for frequently playing either doctors, psychologists, reverends, or judges. His role as criminal psychologist, Dr. Peter Silberman. And the Terminator series is probably what he's best known for. Yes. Other films which he appeared in include Battle Beyond the Stars in 1980, The Man with Two Brains in 83, Alien Nation in 88, Naked Gun 33 and a third, The Final Insult. Uh, Bowen retired from screen acting in 2003, but uh, had continued his work as a voice actor in radio and animated series and video games. Besides Arnold Schwarzenegger... Earl Bowen's the only actor to appear in the first three Terminator films. And unfortunately, he passed away just in January, January 5th, 2023, in Hawaii from lung cancer. I knew he passed away recently. I didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah. Actually, one of my complaints was about Perkins, which is kind of funny. Mm. You know, because he's observing everything that's going on. You see that he's taking notes of all the new changes the office was, was making and reporting it to Tinsworthy, but then he never notices that Hart hasn't stepped in the office in the last four weeks. Good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so my headset actor is someone that's even more brief than yours, and that is Richard Stahl, 
who plays Mead. We see him briefly in Judy's Mr. Hart death fantasy. He's the one that screams, get him. And I knew that face right away because he kind of has that droopy face and he's uh, balding. But let me tell you a little bit about Richard. So born in Detroit, he studied at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City. Some of Stahl's best known film credits include Five Easy Pieces, Beware the Blob, High Anxiety, The Flamingo Kid, Overboard, L.A. Story, and The American President. Stahl would wind up on the television show It's a Living, which I mentioned back in our Mr. Mom episode because one of the stars of that show was Angelian. Stahl would play the head chef of the show and marry another character from the show that was also a 9 to 5, which was Marion Mercer, who played Missy Hart, Dabney Coleman's wife. Stahl passed away in 2006 at the age of 74. Good one. All right. All right, so that takes us to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about 9 to 5? Uh, well, speaking of the film's theme song, 9 to 5, written and recorded by Dolly Parton, it did become one of her biggest hits of the decade. While filming the 9 to 5 movie, Parton found she could use her long acrylic fingernails to simulate the sound of a typewriter. She wrote the song on set by clicking her nails together and forming the beat. The song went to number one for two weeks on the Billboard Hot 100, as well as the U.S. Country Singles Charts, and was nominated for several awards, as we know, including the Academy Award for Best Original Song. So Parton admitted, so the only time she'd ever been to a movie set before 9 to 5 was taking the uh, Universal Studio Tour. So when she got the script for the film, she assumed she had to memorize every word of every character's part. So she actually memorized the whole right. script. Once the cast knew that, they kind of made a little bit of fun of her. It's like, how crazy is that? that? Memorizing a whole 90 pages. Unbelievable. Yeah, I love that fact. Um, the film inspired a sitcom version, which aired from 1982 to 1983 and from 1986 to 1988. The show, which aired on ABC from 82 to 83 and first run syndication from 86 to 88, Featured Parton's younger sister, Rachel Dennison, in Parton's role. Rita Moreno and Valerie Curtin, uh, respectively, took over Tomlin and Fonda's roles. In the second version of the show, Sally Struthers replaced Moreno. A total of 85 episodes were filmed. Do you ever see that show? No. I knew they had done a show about it. I had no idea it was on for that long. I'm surprised I didn't watch it either, considering how much I liked the movie. Or I just don't remember watching it. That's how memorable it was. Yeah. Patricia Resnick, who wrote the movie with Colin Higgins, the director, had Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton all in mind when uh, they were writing the film. Lily Tomlin originally turned down 9 to 5 because she was shooting The Incredible Shrinking Woman, and she just felt like she was so overworked. Luckily, Lily's partner, Jane Wagner, convinced her that rejecting the role would be a huge mistake. Thank you, Jane Wagner. Jane Fonda loved working with Dabney Coleman so much that she got him cast as her husband in On Golden Pond in 1981. That's awesome. Speaking of tone, an earlier version of the script saw the three women intentionally try to kill their boss, but it was the director, Colin Higgins, who shifted it to the fantasy sequences. So maybe it would have followed more of what you wanted. Absolutely, 100%. I'll follow that up by because uh, I have that same bit, and there's a preface to that. Critics complained that while the first part of the movie was cool, dark, and edgy, exploring topical issues like wage discrimination and harassment, 
part two degenerates into sitcomish farce. That's probably because the original script was much darker, as you'd mentioned. But Fonda had stated that the resulting film remains a labor film, but that she hoped it to be a of a new kind, different from The Grapes of Wrath or Salt of the Earth. We took out, this is quoting her, we took out a lot of stuff that was filmed, even stuff the director Colin Higgins thought worked, but which I asked to have taken out. I'm just super sensitive to anything that smacks of the soapbox or lecturing the audience. So that I found very interesting because I agree with what she's saying, but I think it hurt the film in my humble opinion, just from my perspective. I understand what you're saying. Let's not beat the audience over the head with the theme of sexism in the workplace or mistreatment, harassment, you know, et cetera, in the workplace in regards to the way women are treated. It's still supposed to be a lighthearted comedy. So I, I understand that take, but it just went too far in that direction, in my opinion. That's what I was saying. Yeah, I think when I read that, it just, for some reason, Norma Ray went mm. automatically to my head. Which I think sure. came out, okay. came okay. out in 79. Yeah. I think she maybe didn't want to repeat uh, that. Norma Ray's a great movie. Yeah. Maybe it's, it would just feel like, oh, yeah, we just saw this last year. I don't need to see it again. That's a great call. All right. So let's move on to Box Office. So 9 to 5 was released on December 19th, 1980 in 910 theaters. On an estimated budget of $10 million, it grossed $103.3 million domestically. The film opened number two at the U.S. box office with $3.9 million, but fell way short of the number one movie that week, which was Any Which Way You Can, starring Clint Eastwood, which grossed $8 million. However, 9 to 5 had the last laugh, being the second highest grossing movie domestically in the United States, and the first movie with female leads to cross the $100 million barrier. So moving on to reviews, when growing up in the early 80s, we'd watch sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear the reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of 9 to 5 was split. Gene found the movie disappointing because it started off with a great premise, but falls flat with its I Love Lucy gimmicks. Roger agreed it wasn't a great movie, but found it entertaining enough to watch. Both agreed the highlight of the movie was Dolly Parton's performance. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 82% and it has an IMDb rating of 6.9, which takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are additional thoughts and questions you have about 9 to 5, Jason? Just in general, how about movies about horrible bosses? Do you have any any favorites? like Outside of horrible bosses? I Hey, I'm a big fan, actually. I love both Horrible Bosses and Horrible Bosses too, man. I've watched those a few times. How about Swimming with Sharks? How about Office Space? Oh, Office Space. Oh, my God. Yeah. Hell yeah. That one I've watched too many times. Of course, man. Michael Bolton. Freaking classic. Uh, there's The Devil Wears Prada. There's another big one. Yes, that's a good one. And, of course, uh, there's Glengarry Glenn Ross. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot out there. But, yeah, Office Space, man. I need to watch Devil Wears Prada again. I haven't uh, seen that in a while. Yeah, I'm a big Horrible Bosses fan. Just didn't, you know, if you had a, a favorite Horrible Boss movie. Yeah, I might say Office Space. But man, the, all the ones you've mentioned were pretty good. There's a lot of them out there. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think I have anything, any other additional thoughts as, except, you know, when I start complaining about the way the second two, you know, the last two thirds of this film went, it's just, you know, I was trying to think of other ways it could have gone. And I guess my preference, you know, when I speak of methodologies, just how 
they got to the end because I think you won the argument, to be honest, Bill Bant, in the way that they did end up changing the office for the better. The bad guy gets ousted. So that is accomplished in the end. Uh, I did just have a problem with how they got there. I wished that Violet Judy and Dora Lee, instead of going through an entire mistaken identity with a body at the hospital and an entire kidnapping sequence with a lot of the goofy slapstick nature involved, I wished to have seen them conspire with using a little bit more of their own abilities, their inherent abilities and qualities, attributes, what have you, because they each have real strengths. Uh, We see that. And to overcome Franklin by using their wit and their knowledge and their prowess in their own way of being either like Violet being a strong single mother of four or Judy learning now to be an independent woman in the workforce. She doesn't need her husband uh, who cheated on her. She can make it on her own. They find a way to get Franklin out of the office without having to kidnap him. And then we see the real transformation happen through the, or they manipulate the situation behind the scenes somehow to reinforce or better the culture within the workplace. And, uh, I don't have all the answers. It was just, again, it's just a matter of taste. I was wanting to see it go in a different direction. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too long, but what you're saying almost sounds like The Last Jedi, the whole casino sequence stuff. They, mm. do, they do all that for nothing, basically. Right. <laughs> yes, when they're trying to find the, what are they, what do they call them? The, anyway, yes, I see what the, you, exactly what you mean. And yeah, I agree. the encryption guy. Or it whatever. ends up being... They're looking for someone in particular who's supposed to help them, and it ends up being the Benicio del Toro character. But then, to know that has accomplishes nothing, that comes to no fruition, he ends up betraying them. And that whole through line or plot line of them trying to find a certain device that would help them further their cause doesn't work out at all. Right. And you're like, oh, did we just waste the half an hour of the movie then? I don't know. Yeah. I'm hearing a lot of parallels in what you're saying, and that movie that's interesting. But around. but the does it matter though if you're entertained? Because Bill, it it seems as though you were still entertained. It didn't matter as much to you. It was like, okay, this is the choice they made. I'm going to choose to be entertained. Like I, it is entertaining. Like I said, it's not bad. It's not terrible. It's not the worst thing ever. I'm coming down on it because it just wasn't what I personally was looking for from the movie. I still wanted comedy. I still wanted fun. It doesn't have to be so dark that it turns too serious. It's just maybe it's my own fault for having certain expectations. But I think you can make a choice to just have fun with the way it goes. It's There's a lot of silly comedy. I think this is the perfect example of when you are introduced to a movie the first time. Because I saw it when I was nine. You saw it in your late 40s. So you're looking at it totally different than I did. So I'm a lot more forgiving of it. Sure. If the roles were reversed, maybe I would feel the way that you do and you would feel the way that I did. I think a lot of movies just really have to do with when did you see it? How did you see it? And it has so much effect on how you perceive movies. And I think doing this podcast, I'm becoming way more aware of it than I ever have before. Absolutely. It's been really fun to investigate that because i know with my kids 
there's a lot of movies I want them to see, but I'm purposely waiting because I want to make sure that they're the right age to experience it at the right time. Because I remember showing them E.T. the first time. They were just too young and they just were just like, this is kind of boring. And I'm like, damn it. All right, I blew that. There's other movies now that I've just been holding off and now kind of showing them now. And I was like, all right, this is around the same age than I was when I saw it and watching them being fascinated by it and enjoying it as much as I did. I think, yeah, a lot of it just has to do with timing. Yeah. Great points all around, Bill Bant. All right. So let's move on. So I think everybody wants to hear this part now. So let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five boxes of rat poison, what do you give nine to five? Uh, Well, Bill Bant, this might surprise you a little bit. I'm still, I'm going to give this three boxes of rat poison. I'm inclined to agree with Raj Ebert that Dolly Parton's magnetism is extremely winning. There are fun moments. I did laugh out loud at moments. I've just felt like the movie could have been a little less goofy and a bit smarter and having the female protagonists use their own personal and individual attributes to outwit and overcome their sexist boss and demonstrate how the workplace could be run by uh, being better. And having to resort to the kidnapping, which turned zany and farcical, just didn't work for me. But you can't deny, I mean, the actors are great. I mean, it's just a really talented cast and Dolly Parton and the song, 9 to 5. So there's a lot of positives still to take away with it from this. It's still entertaining and uh, it deserves a 3. And and, uh, I'm not going to knock it for the other things. I just had a, it it was just a kind of a taste thing for me. But I respect the talent of the, the actors in this for sure. Okay. Yeah, I'm giving it a 4. And yeah, the main thing is the performances by your four main actors, Dolly, Lily, Jane, and Dabney. I enjoyed the farcical nature of it. Yeah, yeah. I said just for the performances alone, you should watch it. Agreed. Okay, so I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcasts at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. Or visit us on our new website, www.all80smoviespodcast.com. In our next episode, we will be discussing They Live, starring Roddy Piper and Keith David. We hope you join us again. Have a totally great week, everyone. Oh, don't you worry about it, Mr. Hart. I've been chased by swifter men than you, and I ain't been caught yet. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.